Welcome to Ubaldi Reports. The terror attack on September 11th had a profound impact on the United States, much like the attack on Pearl Harbor, which thrusted the United States into World War II. The one segment of the United States military which has seen the greatest use is special operations. The question is, how many of us really know anything about this unique U.S. military capability? Too often, political leaders, and especially Hollywood, have a romanticized and distorted image of our nation's U.S. special operations forces. Movies portray the Rambo-like version, John Wayne's Colonel Kirby, or most recently, the Zero Dark Thirty portrayal of the raid to kill Osama bin Laden. This podcast will be different. Today's guest on Ubaldi Reports will give us a first-hand knowledge of what is Special Forces, dispelling any preconceived notion and replacing it with fact, not fiction, of U.S. Special Operations capability. Today we have a special guest, a highly decorated retired United States Army combat soldier who served throughout the Middle East, Afghanistan, and in the Balkans as a Special Forces operator. Now, we will be speaking with retired United States Army combat veteran, Colonel Jeffrey Goebel, who has extensive experience in the Middle East, Afghanistan, and the Balkans. Colonel Goebel had a, has had a long, distinguished military career, serving in the Army's Special Forces community, all the way from the tactical level to, to the strategic level. He has commanded various conventional and special forces units throughout his 34-year Army career and recently retired from active service as the Vice President of the Joint Special Operations University. He is currently working on a book on the military theory of special forces. Now let's welcome Colonel Jeffrey Goebel. How's it going, Colonel Goebel? It's going great. Thank you. Hey, it's great to have you on the show, and it's great to bring someone with your wealth of experience. Yeah, thank you for having me. But the first thing I want to do is go into the, um, the biography I read about, um, about your service. What does it mean when you served in at the tactical level to the strategic level? Well, I mean, tactical level units are very low level, normally have lower ranking or junior ranking people in them in the services, and they actually tactically execute military operations at the lowest level possible, conducting patrols, uh, doing presence operations in Afghanistan, for example. Strategic level organizations are such as combatant command, the joint staff in in, uh, Washington, or some other high-level organization that is operating at the strategy or policy level of the military. And I've served at you know, U.S. SOCOM headquarters here at McDill Air Force Base in Tampa, as well as uh, Special Forces Detachment Company and a battalion, which are tactical level. So basically, strategic level, they're the ones that plan the operation, and the tactical level are the ones that institu- I mean, I mean, um, do the operation themselves. Yeah, you could think of it that way, no doubt about it. Now... Why did you decide, as we move on with this interview, why did you decide to volunteer for a career in the Special Forces? Now, this is Special Forces is really volunteer-based only, correct? That's exactly correct. Everybody in uh, Special Operations Forces in the United States have volunteered and then been selected in some way, shape, or form. So, yeah, it's something, uh, something that you have to volunteer for. 
Now, is there something that you look? Is there something that the special forces community look for that makes a good special forces operator? Well, absolutely. I mean, each segment of the special operations forces, and there's a lot of them, we can explain them later, um, have their own unique criteria. For example, a special operations aviation unit that has pilots that are flying helicopters or airplanes, they're looking for a certain unique pilot skill set as opposed to a special forces unit or a SEAL unit who are looking for a unique uh army characteristic or a seal characteristic in those guys so uh primarily it ends up being highly intelligent very mature um and i would think the third characteristic ends up being creative in some way shape or form well because the reason i asked that question because like i did in the intro we talked about the movies like rambo you know, John Wayne's Colonel Kirby and Green Berets in the late 1960s and then Zero Dark Thirty. Hollywood always has this lone wolf type mentality when it comes to the special um, special forces. And that's why I was just asking, what does the special forces look for? I mean, yeah, right. Exactly. I mean, special operations forces never operate individually. They, they never do. It's always a team effort. So having the uh, kind of characteristics, uh, personality, and capabilities to operate in a small team is, uh, is certainly very important. The other thing I have to emphasize is the maturity. Um, in, very, in, in many cases, uh, special operations forces uh, operate in very small groups a long way away from any headquarters supervision or even sometimes or very often outside of communications with the higher headquarters and they must have the maturity and resourcefulness to be able to accomplish the mission and adjust to things that change while they're executing the operation where they may not be able to call back and ask what to do or how to do it it's very important the maturity the maturity aspect is something that i can't emphasize enough well that's an important concept because even my i mean i was in the Marine Corps and I was in infantry and in civil affairs. And I, you know, I didn't say I worked alongside special operations, but I met a few of the, the, the unique individuals. And these guys were very intelligent, very smart. They're not the, the outside the box, you know, look at me, look at me. They were just very low. Key. You wouldn't even expect that these guys were your special operators, but they were a very tough breed to be around and they were very well trained and very well disciplined. Yeah, there's a I have a very small vignette of a journalist friend, another journalist friend that I have that went to her first uh, special forces conference at Fort Bragg about 10 or 15 years ago. It might have even been before September 11th. And her expectations were absolutely that, that she thought she was going to go into a big room full of John Rambos or Colonel Kirby's and when she showed up what we saw what she saw was a bunch of men who were well dressed highly intelligent and she described them as a bunch of college professors who were just really in really good shape <laughs> I like that but that that is the correct analogy I was on a radio program and we this subject came up and I mentioned that these guys are highly intelligent for one you have to have language skills and other things that you mainly not associate with this type of um, elite aspect of the military. But 
it's not what the Hollywood portrays as the John Rambo's in the Rambo saga type thing. Yeah, no doubt about it. That's why, you know, the, the, the size is very important. I mean, 67,900 Special Operations Forces fall under U.S. SOCOM. That's only a fraction of the 490,000, for example, that are in the Army. Or if you add the other 300,000 that are in the Navy or the 200,000 or whatever it is in the Air Force, the small number of Special Operations Forces in the U.S. military is only a fraction of the people that are in the Department of Defense. But the size is what makes us, gives us the ability to concentrate such a high level of skill and capability in a small number of people. You could not, you know, one of our imperatives is that you cannot mass produce special operations forces. It would be impossible for us to send 200,000 army soldiers through language school to teach them a foreign language, but we can do it with 20,000 special operations forces. No, you're you're absolutely correct. This isn't something you can mass produce. This is this takes years to go through all the training, not just the military side, but the language training takes time and this you just can't mass produce it. So this is an unhidden unique US military capability. Absolutely. No doubt. Now, why did you decide to join um, or start a career in the special forces being this as a volunteer type organization? Yeah, that's that's kind of a funny question. So, you know, th- 30 years ago was the height of the Reagan era. And, uh, it, you know, the rise of patriotism and conservatism again in the United States. A lot of young men like myself, we were really excited about joining the Army or joining the military. When I ended up getting in the Army on active duty, I ended up finding out that, <clears throat> excuse me, all we were doing is training and exercises that really just displayed our capability to try and scare the Soviet Union. We really weren't doing anything important. Um, at this very same time, uh, special forces as a branch was being created as a career field in the Army. And I saw that as an opportunity to actually do something for real. What I came to find out was that we can do the same thing with a 12-man special forces Uh, detachment that we would normally try and do with an entire infantry battalion. It would be better for us as the United States to send 12 men to Kurdistan, for example, and organize, train, and equip a a Kurdish battalion of infantry rather than us send our own battalion of infantry to do that job for the Kurds. It's It's a classic economy of force mission, and it made all kinds of sense to me. No, it, it it does make sense even to even to this day. Now, did you have family support as you went into this um, this endeavor? Yeah, there's another funny story there. So <laughs> the day that I saw the recruiting poster up on the battery orderly room in my first artillery battalion, I came home and talked to my wife about it and said I was thinking about joining special forces and what did she think about it? Again, she thought she thought she had the John Rambo stereotype in her mind, and she really didn't want me to do that. So she said, no, nah, I don't really think that's a good idea, and I did it anyways. And 30 years later, I retired as a colonel, and we had a wonderful life. So <laughs> That's good. <laughs> now, was your, um, was your parents, like your father or grandfather, were they part of the Army, or were they had a military background? No, actually, I was the only person in my entire immediate family that ever joined the military. I was the first one. And, uh, and now we have a legacy there where um, my sister's son, my nephew, has just this 
my last thing to do in, on the active duty army was to commission him as a second lieutenant in the field artillery in the U.S. Army last May. So uh, hopefully we're starting a legacy here in our family. Well, that's good. Now, is he thinking about doing special forces like you, or is he just going to stay in the artillery community? Yeah, so that's a unique thing about the special forces in the Army in particular compared to the other services, uh, the Navy or even the Air Force, is that you must serve at least one tour three years in the conventional army and get a military occupational specialty outside of the special forces community before you can even try and apply to special forces and so we'll take one step at a time with him he's got to do at least one tour in the field artillery and become a good field artilleryman before we can uh, think about him trying to be a special forces officer now does does that mean you you have to be like an infantry related like armor tanks or the regular straight line infantry before you can apply for special forces? No, absolutely not. I mean, we, we, you know, it, it, in the Army Special Forces in particular, which is a unique subset of special operations forces, um, you know, we, we take applicants from across the Army, no matter what the occupational specialty is, because we're not really looking for the best warriors or even the best soldiers. What we're looking for are the right people and the right soldiers with the right characteristics. Again, highly intelligent, very mature, very resourceful. Uh, certainly have epitomized the character of, uh, of a military officer, for example. So, um, yeah, it doesn't really matter what branch of the Army you come from as long as you're the right person, not necessarily the best person. Well, that's, that's interesting that you say that because I was in the Marine Corps Infantry and to go into force recon, you have to be infantry. If you were like a supply officer, you're not going to go in force recon. You're not going to go into the so, uh, that special operations capability for the Marine Corps now has. So that's a, that's a unique that's a unique trait that the Army has. Yeah, again, the uh, well, even the Air Force does that with their pilots. Again, they're not looking for the best pilots. They're looking for the right pilots with the right characteristics that can actually become special operators. And that's what we do in the Army for sure. Now, certainly like the Army Rangers, for example, they are a subset of the infantry. So you have to be an infantry officer to serve or an infantry soldier to actually even try and become an army ranger and serve in a ranger unit. They have small sets of logistics people, communications, intelligence, and whatnot. But if you want to be in a ranger platoon or be a ranger platoon company commander, you have to be an infantry officer because, quite frankly, the U.S. Army Rangers are really the world's most elite light infantry. That's really what their characteristic is. And so to be light infantry, you got to be a regular conventional infantryman to start out with it. So when you go into special forces, you don't, do you have to go to ranger school first as part of training? No, absolutely not. So, you know, now we have to get to this, this thing that we were talking about uh, before we did this about what, what we're, what we're really talking about in terms of special operations forces and the word special forces, which is a different term. So special operations forces are all the special operations forces that fall under U.S. Special Operations Command for their organization, training, equipment, and support amongst the Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. Special forces themselves, or what people normally know as Green Berets, are a small subset of the Army component of U.S. Special Operations Command. They are special operations forces, but only the Army Green Berets are actually in 
in terms of the words themselves called special forces and you recognize them again by wearing a green beret on their head so that means the um from let me make sure i got this right so the army rangers they're not part of u.s special forces command u.s so oh no the army rangers are special operations forces who fall under u.s special operations command but they're not special forces which are completely unique capability from special operations forces a subset of it i know it's confusing and it sounds like mincing words and quite honestly we in the department of defense and in particular the special operations community have kind of befuddled the issue over the past 25 years by defining redefining recategorizing the word special within the military and in particular special operations community for mostly bureaucratic and institutional reasons to distinguish one from another and they have to be distinguished somehow but we distinguish them by using the same word special and having slightly different meanings for it it gets really confusing so i hope i've been able to clarify that with you today no that's fine and this kind of goes into the next question is what is the history of you i mean how did we get to this point from what is the history of u.s special forces yeah, um, it's uh, it's really a very simple thing. So special operations forces, more rightly called special operations forces, or those forces which are in the military and fall under U.S. SOCOM again, um, trace their lineage back to an organization called the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS in World War II. That organization's missions were to uh, conduct sabotage, subversion, and organize, train, and equip resistance forces uh, to resist the Axis powers in World War II, both in Europe and to a smaller extent in the Pacific theaters of operation, again, in World War II. So, for example, the Free French Resistance Forces in France, who uh, conducted resistance operations against the Nazis, were supported by the OSS with Americans who were inserted deep in the enemy territory to assist them. So now after World War II, the OSS was dissolved. Um, its intelligence apparatus became what we now know and what we now call the Central Intelligence Agency. The military apparatus or the paramilitary capabilities that were in the OSS were absorbed into the Department of Defense, which was newly created after World War II, and the separate military services in the Department of Defense. Each of those services um, have their trace their military uh, lineage of their own special operations forces or capabilities back to different organizations in their own service as well. For example, some Army special operations forces trace their lineage back to Rogers Rangers in the World War in the Revolutionary War or Merrill's Marauders in the Pacific Theater of World War II. Uh, the Navy SEALs, for example, trace their lineage back to the Scouts and Raiders and the combat demolition teams or the UDT teams from World War II Navy. But it wasn't until the uh, 1960s that special operations forces and their capabilities became an important military capability. Uh, If you recall back in the 1960s, we started entering the nuclear era, which was an incredibly dangerous part of U.S. history. Was typified by the small proxy wars fought between the U.S. and the Soviet Union because, quite frankly, the U.S. and the Soviet Union could not afford, and it was too dangerous for them to become, you know, in a face-to-face confrontation. So they were conducting these small proxy wars in South 
Central America and Africa and special operations forces became a very important part of that. Okay. Now, what role did um, President Kennedy play? Because I think on Fort Bragg, isn't there a like one of the bases that are is a, um, named after him? Absolutely. I mean, what, yep. what role did he play? So in the this? John F. Kennedy Special Warfare Center and School at Fort Bragg is the uh, special warfare uh, training school for Army Special Operations Forces at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I believe it was in 1960, um, President Kennedy visited Fort Bragg to command the special operations forces that were there um, for the assistance that they were they were providing to the United States in the small proxy wars that were being fought at the time across Africa and Central and South America. President Kennedy recognized that and he wanted to officially come to Fort Bragg and recognize the special operations forces as an integral part of the U.S. Army at the time and then eventually as part of the U.S. military. And he's the one that is credited with awarding Army Special Forces with the Green Beret at the time and and commissioning that as the only headgear. Well, that was the only force that could wear a Green Beret in the U.S. Army. It's a very unique part of our history. Now, is that still the same today? Because I know there was a big change in the um, the color of the berets when, um, what was it? Yeah, General? when the Army wanted to start wearing, everybody wanted to start wearing black berets in the Army. Yeah, it was General Shinseki that did. That's it, General Shinseki. I'm yeah, sorry. exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, only special forces, soldiers, and officers in the Army can wear the green beret. When the, when the entire Army adopted the wearing of the black beret, which is the headgear that Army Rangers traditionally wore since just after World War II, the uh, Rangers changed their headgear color to a tan beret. So now if you see Army soldiers walking around with a tan beret on their head, they are serving in a Ranger uh, Special Operations Unit, and guys wearing green berets are serving in a Army Special Forces Unit. Now, who was wearing, maybe I got this one wrong, who was wearing the maroon beret? Yeah. Or is that... So that, that historically goes back to even before World War II. Maroon berets are not part of the special operations community necessarily. Paratroopers or airborne soldiers actually wear the maroon beret when they are serving in an airborne or paratrooper unit. So a unit in the, in, in the Army... Um, that is considered airborne and has the capability of parachuting out of airplanes is considered an airport airborne unit and all the soldiers in those units wear maroon beret 18th airborne corps 82nd airborne division at fort bragg are the biggest ones if you go to fort bragg everybody's wearing some color beret okay yeah because i was attached to the 18th airborne corps when i first went to afghanistan in 2002 i was just wanted to clarify that yep, there one. you go now, the other question is, as you mentioned, the proxy wars of the 1960s, and we, U.S. Special Forces was heavily involved in Vietnam. Well, how has Special Forces changed from Vietnam to how Special Forces are utilized since 9-11? Yeah, okay. So uh, I think I mentioned earlier that when I joined Spe- Army Special Forces, it was becoming a separate branch and career field in the Army. Prior to that and, and from before Vietnam and, and it. And the first Special Forces unit in 1952 until the late 1980s, Special Forces was only a secondary specialty, primarily manned by infantry soldiers and officers who 
really only served in a for special forces duty for one or two years at a time. And while while most of those men who served in those units, uh, if you know anything about the history, were very capable, brave combat warriors, the conventional army saw them really as misfits and out of the mainstream, certainly in terms of promotion and advancement in, in the service. So that's not necessarily a way for a profession to manage its people. If you can imagine the medical profession... Uh, if it looked at emergency medical uh, doctors as only, as merely just a special, a secondary specialty as an additional duty for, say, a family, family practice doctor, it just wouldn't work that way. So making special forces a separate professional career field in the Army was a start. Uh, other changes that, that took place in the 1980s included the creation of and this is probably the most important one, the, the creation of the U.S. Special Operations Command, again, at the strategic level by the Goldwater-Nichols Defense Reorganization Act in 1986, which really institutionalized special operations forces in the Department of Defense, giving U.S. SOCOM the responsibility for funding through the defense budget and overseeing the organization training and equipping of Special Operations Forces in all the services, Army, Navy, Air Force, and now even the Marines. That was probably the most significant thing uh, and the biggest change since the Vietnam era. Okay. Now, I want to make sure I got this. Has there been a special oper- I mean, special forces member, been the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Now, wasn't Hugh Shelton yep. part of that community? General Hugh Shelton, who was one of the... Uh, commanders of one of the first commanders of U.S. Special Operations Command also matriculated up to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and uh, we're really proud of him, absolutely, no doubt about it. Yeah, because I know he relinquished command to, um, was it uh, right, after, right, right after 9-11, he retired. And I was just wanted to make sure because I mean someone mentioned that and yep. I couldn't remember if there was someone. I just kind of remembered that there was. Yeah, that was really a point of pride for me as a young Green Beret, seeing the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff wearing a Green Beret on his head. I thought that was uh, that was a particular point of pride for us at the time, no doubt about it. And I can, and I'm sure it was pride for everybody. Now, this um, this one thing you've already mentioned. What is the? Um, you mentioned this earlier, having been. Using the term, let me get this right, using the term special operations forces rather than special forces, what is the difference and why is there a difference? Yeah, um, yeah I think I mentioned it a little bit earlier. The, the difference ends up being um, in, in terms of the unique capabilities. So the overarching term for the forces that we call special in the U.S. military, again, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, is called Special Operations Forces. And again, 67,900 of them, they fall under U.S. Special Operations Command for their organization, training, and equipment. This includes Navy SEALs, they have special boat units, Army Rangers, Army Special Forces, again, otherwise known as Green Berets, certain Army aviation and support units, and Marine Corps Special Operations teams. The Air Force has special operations uh, aircraft and pilots. They have compact patrolmen, pararescuemen, and even special weather teams. All of those, but very small subset falling under U.S. Special Operations Command. Special Forces being a unique aspect of Special Operations Forces 
are a branch of the U.S. Army, part of the Army Special Operations Forces, and they are only known as the Green Berets, and it's a very small, unique capability that they bring to the table in terms of special warfare and conducting special operations. Navy SEALs are not special forces. They are special operations forces. And I know it sounds like mincing words again, but it's just a bureaucratic distinction that we have to live with, and it's very important for people to understand that so they know what's going on when they hear people talking about it. So basically what you're saying is special forces are a unique subset of the Army, but special operations forces combine all the branches into special operations forces. Yes, exactly. There you go. Because I know we utilize that term. We use special forces and we throw it to everybody, and I think they're meaning special operations forces instead of special forces. And I think like you're saying, not trying to mince words, but that's a unique distinction. It is absolutely a unique distinction, and uh, again, it's important for people to understand. Now, in part of the special operations, uh, I guess, forces or maybe even the special forces itself, how did the other capabilities like psyops and civil affairs how did because i know at one point in the army they were under special op, special forces or the special operations forces yeah that, you know that that'll befuddle the issue as well so, um psychological operations uh and civil affairs capability within the army that was really just a big bureaucratic and institutional fight uh, in the 1990s and early part of last decade, at the end of the day, those two unique capabilities in the Army, psychological operations and civil affairs, um, the conventional Army realized that they needed to have those kinds of forces in their conventional formations supporting conventional operations. And really the Congress of the United States which supplies U.S. SOCOM with its unique funding line in the Department of Defense, um, saw that as the Army, who has a separate funding line that comes in the defense budget, um, making a play for SOCOM's budget line. And the Congress is really the one from a funding standpoint that separated psychological operations and civil affairs from the greater U.S. SOCOM capability. Um, And it was all, again, based on bureaucratic wrangling and budget lines and money and stuff like that, not necessarily about unique or highly skilled capability, which is what we consider that, you know, in in the special ops community. Well, because the reason I mentioned that, because, I mean, the Marine Corps doesn't have um, PSYOPs, but we do have civil affairs, and that's what I did. Exactly. Trying to get the Marine Corps to understand what the capabilities of civil affairs. I was just understanding the Marine Corps civil affairs community is just generalist. We're just not that large. Right. But the Army has a very unique and large component of civil affairs. So I was just trying to get a feel of how is they set yep. up different than what well, I mean, again, they're involved highly in. skilled, highly capable, not really that large, larger than the Marine Corps, no doubt. But again, highly skilled, highly capable. Uh, specially selected for a unique uh, characteristic that can develop a unique skill set and conduct those kinds of uh, of operations employing that kind of warfare. Now, um, getting back to the, the, uh, the special forces and the special operations forces, how are the other military branches incorporated into special operations? 
Uh, well, like I said earlier, each of the four military services have special operations forces that they're responsible for administering to. And this is a, uh, a this is a really important thing for people to understand. It's simple, but they might not just know about it. The the services themselves, Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines, are responsible for administering to those soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines with the same administrative services as all the others that serve in that service. And that distinction, again, comes from the Congress and how they allocate money. What is unique about these service members, though, that, again, currently 67,900 of them, is that they report to U.S. SOCOM for their specialized training, equipment, and employment or allocation to the other warfighting commands around the world. So, for example, the Navy does not send Navy SEALs to do their missions. U.S. SOCOM does. And the Navy doesn't pay for Navy SEALs to get the specialized training that they get to conduct those missions. U.S. SOCOM does. Now, U.S. SOCOM, that is a joint command where, because I know Admiral McRaven, who was the a SEAL commander, he ran U.S. SOCOM. Could any of the four branches be the commander or the CG of U.S. SOCOM? Absolutely. The current commander is uh, Army General Joe Votel. Um, prior to Admiral McRaven was another Navy Admiral, um, Admiral Olson. And then prior to him was an Army officer who was a Special Operations Aviation Officer when he was a junior, uh, General Brown. So um, we have had uh, Air Force Special Operations four-star general be the commander of uh, Special Operations Command General Holland back Actually, when uh, when 9-11 happened, General Holland was the commander of Special Operations Command. We've yet to have a Marine, though. We're expecting to have one pretty soon, I bet you. Yeah, and I, I think that's just going to take time because this the Marine Corps just came on board with it, what, in the last couple of years? Yep. So it's just going to take a little time. It'd be nice, but it's just going to take a little time to get to get to that point. Right. Now, how do special forces differ from their conventional forces or the the straight line infantry. Yeah. Okay. It's uh. Again, I, I mean, it sounds like mincing words, um, but it's really important distinction to understand that. So I'm going to get a little bit theoretical with you, but I'll boil it down and uh, no, that's fine. And try and make it simple. So any element of national military power is comprised primarily of three things: the forces themselves. The brand of warfare that those forces employ that is unique to those forces and the operations that they conduct when employing that brand of warfare. So each of the elements of military power have these three aspects and they are unique from the others. For example, the sea power of the U.S. military is comprised of our naval forces who employ naval warfare techniques to conduct naval operations on behalf of the nation. Same analogy holds true for air power and land power, with primarily the air forces and army forces. So U.S. SOCOM follows the same model and is unique from the other elements. Special operations forces employing special warfare tactics and techniques to conduct what we call special operations on behalf of the nation, completely unique from, you know, air power, land power, or sea power. They are different. They're unique, and and that's what 
you know, separates special operations forces from conventional forces as an element of U.S. military national power. Now, this is what you're going to be putting together, or at least your the theory of special forces in your book, correct? Absolutely. Yep, no doubt. Okay. That That is basically, you know, the theoretical description of special operations uh, analogous to what we consider the other elements of national military power. Okay. Now, how have the general public, and really especially U.S. political leaders, misunderstood what special operations forces do? Yeah, so, I mean, it holds true, again, with that, with that basic theoretical construct that the first thing is, you know, special soft are confused or mistaken for one of the other elements of military power. Uh, Army special forces are not army forces that are part of the land power of the U.S. military. They are special operations forces that employ a unique brand of special warfare and conduct highly specialized operations on behalf of the nation. Um, I think the other one is that people don't understand what special warfare is or how it is employed by special operations forces. And then further, what the difference is between, you know, special operations and conventional operations. And I mean, it's easy to see. I mean, even if you look at history, it's easy to see, but people don't even know. I mean, they don't know what they don't know to even look for those distinctions. And I think those are the two biggest ones right there. Well, the the reason I asked that question, because especially with regard to what's going on with ISIS in the Middle East, there was a raid, I think was about two months ago, when Delta forces crossed over into Syria and they, you know, they killed some ISIS fighters from there. And then they want to use more, I guess, special forces ingrained into the embedded armies of Iraq and the Kurds, especially the Iraqi forces in the south and the Ambar province, to utilize call for fire and, and that aspect. Yep. Yeah, no doubt is that it. part of that's is that par- part of what special forces the capability they bring? Absolutely, no doubt about it. Um, I think what, what what's missing here, and I see it on television all the time, is a clear understanding of special operations forces and what and how they do things um, compared to conventional forces. And in the case of operations against ISIS, certain soft units especially special forces units are perfectly suited for conducting special operations like advising Iraqi or Kurdish forces on how to employ allied air power against ISIS. Small numbers of mature, highly capable forces who embed with indigenous units, speak their language, understand their cultures and capabilities, and can adapt to that kind of high-risk environment and be trusted to complete the mission. What you know? What what soft are not well suited for is, for example, reestablishing a large military presence in Iraq, like we had in the middle part of the last decade, or occupying or holding territory in a place like Syria. If our if our nation's leaders decided to do that kind of stuff, those are types of conventional operations that require large numbers of conventional forces, and special operations forces are not well suited to doing that kind of stuff. It's almost like the way the um, operations were conducted against the Taliban in the early stages after 9-11, where they embedded them in and they were able to call in airstrikes and drive the the Taliban out. No doubt about it. Um, The uh, special operations forces that dropped into uh, northern Afghanistan linked up with what was known as the Northern Alliance, helped them organize, do a little bit of training, equip them with a 
bunch of weapons and ammunition and then went along with them to help them employ their forces against the uh, Taliban and overthrow the Taliban government, exactly the kind of special operation that software suited for, no doubt about it. Now, and this finally segues into the final questions. What area or what is the one area the public and really especially elected officials should know about U.S. special forces? Yeah, I think the most important thing is that uh, SOF is not just about counterterrorism or what people see on television, hunting down and killing or capturing terrorists. Well, that's one of the missions or operations that certain SOF units can conduct. It's not necessarily the most important or even the most useful in a conflict like the one we have with ISIS. Uh, Again, a mission called Foreign Internal Defense or working with indigenous forces in friendly territory uh, or unconventional warfare, which is basically working with indigenous forces in enemy territory, are two of the core soft capabilities which are much more effective in this type of conflict. Risky? Absolutely. But but that's one of the reasons why we select, train, and equip special operations forces at such a high level, and that's to mitigate that risk when they're employed in small teams far away from any U.S. infrastructure. You know, as far as counterterrorism is concerned, and yes, it's an important and useful soft capability. It might even be a little bit uh, satisfying to the American people, but quite honestly, we can't kill our way out of this conflict. ISIS can't be attrited like like the Nazis were in Germany in World War II. For every terrorist we we kill, there are several more relatives and friends of that terrorist who became more radicalized by his killing, ready to step in and join their cause. Yes, there are a lot of radicals in ISIS who we can never negotiate or reconcile with, and they have to be killed. But but we absolutely can't kill them all, and we can't kill our way out of this conflict. Well, I mean, basically, there's almost been, and I know there's a term for it, called revolutionary, revolutionizing the way military conflicts are fought, because the nation-state, where nation are going at nation-state, is almost kind of relegated to the past, where we're going to have these conflicts like I think what the Department of Defense came out with its new military policy where they're they're looking at countries where you have this type of problem sure. and how, how do we deal with it and this is a, a unique because even in civil affairs a lot of people didn't understand that you can you're right you can't kill your way out of this problem yeah I think that the era I think what you're describing there is the era of you know nation on nation military on military you know, fairly predictable linear conflict has gone by the wayside and and conflict inside of nation states or even inside of two or three nation states amongst four or five different, slightly different factions or entities is pretty much what we're going to find ourselves involved with. Um, and like I said, I think special operations forces have a large role to play in that kind of conflict, no doubt about it. Yeah. And I would agree with you. And then probably the last thing that I want to touch on, just to give you a plug, we mentioned this earlier. Why don't you describe a little bit what you're trying to do with your book? Well, I mean, what, what I really want to do is, uh, is clarify that, that very simple theoretical construct that I, that I, that I wrote for you because um, certainly within our government and in our military, there has been a lack of understanding of soft. And one of the reasons why there is that lack of understanding is that we haven't sat down and written our theoretical construct. If you look at the Army, Navy, 
and the Air Force of the United States. They have academically developed, uh, universally understood and accepted theories that describe their uh, brand of military power. And we in SOF simply just don't have that same book, and I want to be able to do it. And I think it's it's I think it's it's much needed, especially as we as we stated a few minutes ago, this change in military conflict and how this is this unique capability is going to be used more and more. And I just think your book would be kind of dispel what is fact and what is fiction between special forces and the special operations forces. Yeah, I mean it's really important for people, especially decision makers in our government, to. Uh to uh, build their knowledge base about the decisions that they're making based on, uh, you know, intellectually high level, well academically developed uh, books as opposed to uh, pundits and uh, news reporters and sound bites. I mean, I think it's really important for them to consume a body of literature to really understand something before they make decisions about how to employ it or not. No, I, I agree, and I just think the problem is we got a lot more of the American public that has never served in the military or has any connection. And that's why I wrote a book called The New Business Brigade that talks about when the whole premise is why businesses need to hire veterans, but the whole the concept is there's a disconnect between those who served and those who haven't. Yeah, right. And I just think what you're doing is it's going to be a phenomenal read, and I look forward to having you back on the show so next time we can talk more about your book and how we can get this out to a broader audience but i'd like to thank um, colonel jeff gobels for coming on ubaldi reports and if you continue to listen to ubaldi reports you can go to itunes and stitcher sign up it's free and leave a comment list tell me what you want to hear and we're going to bring more individuals like colonel gobel whether it's from a political or military to learn and get fact, not fiction, of what's going on and how this impacts the United States. And again, if you get a chance, read my book, The New Business Brigade. You can find it on Amazon or any of the major book retailers. And the premise is why businesses need to hire veterans and the unique capabilities they represent. But again, I would like to thank Colonel Jeffrey Goebbels for being on the show. And thank you for your service to your country. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, take it easy and have a great day and keep continuing listening. Yeah, it went a little longer than I thought, man. I'm sorry. Yeah, there you go, man. I mean, that's the whole point. I'm glad to help. That's... Hey, no worries, man. You can do that. As long as, you know, as long as it, I mean, I have no problems with anything that I said, and I have no problems with anything that you uh, asked me. So um, I don't need to have the right of first refusal, I don't think. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, dude, just go up, go ahead and uh, just go ahead and upload it to wherever you upload it, and I'll get it from there.
Thanks, brother. Later.